This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service, December 23rd, 2018, at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The speaker is Sam Ford. More information can be found at rdchurch.com. scripture reading comes from Luke chapter 2 verses 1 through 20. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quinarius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them according to this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart, and the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all, that the, for all they had seen and heard as it had been told to them. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Well, good morning. Thank you for being with us. My name is Sam, and I'm going to pray so that God will move me out of the way and say what he needs to say. And that's a lot of rhyming, but not intended. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for who you are. We Thank you that we can gather here and in the busyness and the chaos of this world and this season, be reminded of what is true, of what is important, of what is real, of what is eternal. That is why we gather here, Lord, to worship you, to declare your greatness, to be reminded of our need and to rejoice in what you have done through your Son, Jesus Christ, for us. Lord, as we give gifts this season, as we gather this season, as we enjoy great fellowship and food with our family and friends, let us be reminded that this is not all there is. That any amount of joy we might experience is just a slight foretaste of what is yet to come. Lord, I pray that that during this season and beyond, we will find our identity firmly rooted in Jesus Christ. For it's so easy, Lord, especially in a world so full of stuff and things to do and distractions 
to find or place our identity elsewhere. But Lord, You have told us that it is Your desire and plan to dwell with us. That from the beginning of creation, Lord, You desire to be with a people. So I pray that our eyes will be lifted up, our minds will be set on the things above and not the things below. And that this morning, by Your Word, You will speak the words that each of us uniquely need to hear. Only You know what those words are, Spirit. So give us the words of conviction or comfort during a season that for many of us is joyful and for others, others is sorrowful. Be our comfort and be our true joy at this time. It is in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. So typically, if you've spent any time with us, uh, I go through books of the Bible verse by verse. And so we would have been today uh, in a text that talks about finding hope in great loss and death. I thought maybe during Christmas that might not be the best thing to focus on. We will hit that the first week of January. I do believe that every sermon is a Christmas sermon, but this one might be a little more Christmassy than is typical, or maybe this is what you expect. Today's text is probably one of the most well-known Christmas texts in the Bible, and that has been accomplished probably through things like Charlie Brown. This is the text that they read. If you haven't watched Charlie Brown's Christmas, you should. Shame on you. It's fantastic. It would never fly today on public television, but it is awesome. Luke chapter 2 begins with this declaration of a real historical leader telling us that Luke's account is an eyewitness report. It's, a, it's an accounting of everything that happened. He got information. It takes place in history. This is not just legend or myth or a made-up story, it's true. Caesar Augustus was the true leader of Rome. He was the self-proclaimed Son of God. That's what he called himself. He was the one who brought the great Roman peace to what would amount to the known world. The known world at that time would have been anywhere Rome was ruling, which was pretty much everywhere. And he brought that peace through violence, and domination. His ability to restore justice, in a sense, to maintain the peace for the whole world, led the emperor to be trusted and even identified as Savior and hailed as Lord. At one point, Caesar Augustus even borrowed the Greek word for gospel, the good news, and he applied it as a label for the new world order that represented his reign. This is the context of which Jesus is born. The emperor at this time more than just obeyed politically, he was worshipped religiously and he was feared by everyone. Yet as he and other sinful kings and rulers fearfully worked to build their own earthly kingdoms, God in the background and inside like a guerrilla warfare type of thing was mysteriously using a bunch of little sinful shepherds to masterfully orchestrate the arrival of His Son. Now, God becomes much bigger, huge, when as we read these stories, which again are histories, true accountings, and we focus on the small details in the story. 
What you have is during the reign of the, quote, Savior and Lord Caesar, who proclaimed a gospel of peace to anyone who would submit to him, an angel appearing to a young Jewish teenage girl engaged to be married, telling her that she is going to give birth to the long-awaited true Lord and Savior and King who is going to bring peace to all who will believe. This teenage girl becomes pregnant even though she's a virgin. Her freaked out but honorable boyfriend works quietly to divorce her to protect her and himself from shame until an angel shows up and convinces him otherwise. At this first census decree of Caesar, Joseph takes his betrothed future wife to his place of birth, the city of David, Bethlehem. She's pregnant. They travel on a donkey where they spend a night in a barn and she gives birth to a king among animals whose feeding trough become a bed for their creator. What a crazy story. What an amazing history. And when you understand just how big our God is, all of our problems become quite small. And I would argue that God becomes that big when in this particular story you realize just how small the infinite God was willing to become. And you begin to realize how intimately involved He is in the details. The details of the story reveal that God is not surprised by anything. God is orchestrating all things to bring about His plan in the most glorious but somewhat unexpected way. Now, if I were God's campaign manager, which obviously I am not, the funny thing is, in our world today, we talk so much about politics, partially because we have the internet and so we can talk about politics so much. We even know about campaign, we probably know the names of campaign managers, right? Those people who are responsible to kind of proclaim and, and brand and, and, and put kind of a face and a, and a brand or a motto on this person and make them known to the world. So if I was God's campaign manager, I'm not certain this is how I would basically advise him to come into the world. It doesn't make a lot of sense in a fleshly way, in an earthly way. Maybe he could have waited a little bit longer in history to when the internet came out, and he could have made a larger and bolder and more public and pervasive, like huge splash. At least he could have done something a little bit louder more noise than the cry of a little baby in a little town in a little stable. See, Christmas reminds us that God isn't actually interested in the spectacular. He's interested in the supernatural. He's interested in those things that are only possible by His will and power. And that's the difference between a Caesar and the true Lord and Savior. We see that the first pronouncement of Jesus' arrival was not to men of fame or power or fortune. It was to a group of men that the world really saw as fools. 
If you read Paul's letter to the Corinthian church, and this should be an encouragement to us all, though we don't like to identify this way, as he's writing the Corinthian church in chapter 1, verse 26, he tells them to consider how they were called, how, how God brought them, if you will, into His kingdom of light from the kingdom of darkness. And he says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Our faith as Christians is simply about what God has done. Period. Not anything we can do, not anything we have done, but what God has done for us. This is the heart of God's call. Jesus saves the weak. Jesus saves the poor. Jesus saves the dirty and the despised. And I find that my role as a pastor is to try and convince myself and others that that's actually who we are. Weak and broken. Outcasts. Now, if God is only in the business of saving weak sinners, broken sinners, poor sinners, it makes sense that His first announcement, the long-anticipated, remarkable, incomparable, supernatural announcement of the arrival of the Son of God, the Lord, the Creator, the King, is made to a group of anonymous shepherds. We never learn their names. Luke must have found them Luke didn't witness this particular event. Only these shepherds did. Perhaps he had reports of people that had talked to him or talked to the shepherds. But ultimately, these men are left anonymous. These kings of the fields outside Bethlehem. It says in verse 8 that in the same region where Joseph was at, there were shepherds in the field keeping watch over the flock by night. We might be surprised that God first announced to shepherds until if you read your Bible enough, you'll realize that God really loves shepherds. He talks about shepherds a lot. I've mentioned this before. Beginning in Genesis with Abel, who was the keeper of sheep. Moses, who spent 40 years shepherding sheep in the hills of Midian. David, the king of Israel, who himself was a shepherd and whose line led to Christ. Psalm 23 is a song that describes the Lord Himself as a shepherd. The prophet Ezekiel looked forward and envisioned the restoration of Israel when they would have one shepherd. And of course, Jesus Himself is the good shepherd and the church is His flock. And so understanding the shepherds is essential in understanding the heart of God. And though God uses shepherds, we shouldn't romanticize shepherds because the occupations of shepherds were pretty low on the proverbial totem pole. In fact, understanding what a shepherd was makes their transformation and their selection by God to be the first ones to hear about Jesus pretty incredible. See, for the most part, shepherds were pariahs or outcasts in society. Uh, they weren't like lepers. 
but close. Uh, they were dirty. They held the lowest social status and were shunned by the wealthy and the famous and especially the religious because of their impurity. You see, the shepherds were considered ceremonial unclean. Living amongst sheep meant they couldn't actually keep all the rules and the regulations that the rabbis required, and so they were considered impure. And more than that, they actually, uh, supposedly in the rabbi's view, had a proclivity for dishonesty. And so the shepherd's own testimony was not admissible legally in court. These are the ones that Luke uses for his eyewitness account. Knowing that it would be read by, oh, shepherds. Shepherds would say anything, right? Which I would argue only brings more veracity to the Scriptures. Well, these shepherds represent what I believe are the very outcasts and sinners that Jesus came for. And though none of us want to identify with what Jesus describes as the poor in spirit, please know that these are the only people that Jesus saves. Jesus saves sinners. And unless you are willing to acknowledge and repent of your sin, Jesus has nothing for you. Now, God, we see, saves sinners. He doesn't call the rich or mighty. He calls the poor and the lowly. And our biggest tension, I think, in our life is to talk about those poor people. Yes, those are the kinds of people that Jesus saved, not these are the kinds of people that Jesus saves. That that's talking about us. The problem with all of us is that we often live as if we're kings in palaces ruling our little worlds when the truth is we are kings in the fields ruling very little. Refusing to admit we're dirty outcasts, we have a tendency to build kingdoms around us to make us feel better and all in an effort to really hide what we already feel, what we already know, what we hope no one else finds out. That I'm dirtier than you think. That I'm more broken than you would know. But I'll build it up to make it look different. We're shepherds. Verse 9 says, And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. This is really important. We have a tendency to think of shepherds if we go, well, okay, shepherds are pariahs, whatever, and we kind of think they're wimpy. Well, have you ever imagined what an angel looks like? I've not seen an angel. Maybe you've seen an angel. I'm sure you've seen a picture of an angel. Someone's artistic rendition of it. Historically, people have come up with some pretty interesting pictures of angels. Generally speaking, there seems to be options that fall between angels as beautiful women, uh, angels as kind of male babies with diapers on, and then some kind of androgynous kind of weird winged fairy kind of thing. Like, it's all over the place. And if we take a look at like shepherds and this angel coming to speak with them and every interaction with an angel in the Bible. Like, it's never a time like, oh, look at the angel, you guys. It's never like that. It's people falling flat on their face. And shepherds, these aren't soft-skinned little pansies prancing around the fields with their fluffy sheep. These are tough dudes. These are hard-working, fierce-hunting, 
hardened, hiking, who have seen a lot, not easily fooled by fantasy and not scared. Like David killed lions with a slingshot. He didn't run. Shepherds were tough dudes. And yet the appearance of this angel fills them with terror. With great fear. Fear, surprisingly. Fear, even for the most fearless and strongest of men, is really the only appropriate response to God. And I don't mean fear like the boogeyman fear. Like God's going to get me fear. I mean a fear kind of like, well, I think C.S. Lewis probably said it best when he talked about Aslan the lion. And he talked about, um, I can't remember who asked, it might have been Lucy who asked. He says, oh, is, is Aslan safe? Oh, no, no. He's very kind and wonderful, but he, he's not safe. Right? And there's this, this draw and yet fear. Like, oh, I want to be close, but I'm scared. Oh, 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 right? The fear of God doesn't actually cause us to run and hide for those who are His kids. I actually think that genuine fear of the Lord leads men to pursue Him carefully and praise Him because of His greatness and His grace. So in verse 10, the angel starts talking. So you can imagine these guys, these strong dudes, freaked out, never seen an angel before. And the angel says, fear not. Implying they're really scared. Like it can be seen. Like they're probably cowering in their sheep folds, whatever. And I bring you good news of great joy for that will be for all people. For unto you born this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this is going to be a sign for you. You're going to find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And then suddenly there was an angel multitude, or with the angel, multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God. Like it be really loud, right? Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. This is a huge event. It's amazing as we kind of like read this and go, oh yeah, it's angels. Like, like try to imagine what this was like. The angel shows up, they're scared. And the angel tells these very manly shepherds lying in the fetal position that he has not come to bring great fear, but great joy. To which they were all quite relieved, I'm sure. This is so important. Because this joy that is being spoken of is not joy that comes through good advice or good instruction, but from good news. Literally, the Gospel. The Gospel, it's so important. If, if you hear nothing, if you learn nothing for your time in our church, please know that the Gospel, the good news of Jesus is not instructions on how to save yourself. The good news is not advice on this is the three-step process to reach God. It is the declaration of what God has done in history to save sinners through His Son, Jesus Christ. It's news. 
You either believe it or you don't. And if you believe it, and really for everyone, it changes the condition of anyone who hears. It doesn't require action to achieve acceptance by God. Only acceptance that what He said is true. That's the Gospel. And it transforms. But I find it kind of funny for guys who have probably killed bears and lions with their bare hands or stones that this great news, at least on a flesh level, we think, is that really that impressive? Fear not! I bring good news! A Savior is born! Okay, and here's the sign. You're going to find a little baby in a manger. What did he say? Did he say a, 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 that this great Savior and ki- baby in a manger? But truly, in a direct and wholly unexpected challenge to the entire Roman world, its emperor, its might, its promise of peace, God sends a Savior that blows away all expectations. Let's just take this down to real life for a second. Because what I find oftentimes in my ministry as a pastor, uh, let me just like summarize my ministry, my job. My job is to point you to Christ, our Lord, especially in times when it's most difficult. And I've found that in times where it's most difficult is when your expectations for life are not met. And I don't for a second believe that uh, the expectations we're talking about is like, well, I, I, I wanted this simple A and I got B. I, I, with, with great loss, with great uh, suffering, with uh, great left turns instead of right turns, it can be significant things. But I found that much of my ministry is convincing people that yes, the world is broken. Yes, the world is sinful. Yes, sin has really screwed things up. But the problem isn't with God. The problem is with our expectations. That the way our lives unfold, good and bad, God is ultimately ordaining. And that is not an easy pill to swallow at times. I recognize that. But we see in this case, in the story of Jesus, something completely unexpected. In many ways, guys looking at a baby going, really? This, as Joseph was told, is going to save people from their sin? This, as Mary was told, is going to be the king? Which means he's going to overrule the emperor? Unexpected. Unbelievable. And that is where faith comes into play. Where God says, stop living by what you see and believe what you hear. Trust my promises. Now, we see in this case, he doesn't send a soldier, which might have helped. He doesn't send some powerful judge or celebrity. He sends a child to become Savior and King who will love the world and save it by dying. And to bring the point home in case they like really like, really? It's interesting. An angel comes, he says this, and you always wonder like, what happens between this moment and the next one? What are they thinking? What are they feeling? Because if one angel made them really kind of wet their loincloths, so to speak, suddenly, after this news is proclaimed, 
There is literally an army of angels there to take it to the next level. And whether it's sung or simply spoken, you have an army. So it's not just like a group of three. You have this huge sky filled with angels proclaiming glory to God in the highest and peace to men. What, is he, what, are they, what does that mean? That's after the news. So the news has been proclaimed. And now glory to God. And we talk about glorifying God. How to bring glory to God. And really when you talk about glorifying God, you are talking about ascribing value. You are describing worth. You're saying this is how much weight you are worth. This is how much majesty you are valued at. It's great. And it's worth, it's praise. I'm praising God. And the thing about it is we, we naturally praise those things that we love. It's, it is natural for us. The angels are praising God, not because, okay, guys, start praising now. They enjoy God. They love God. They are praising God. They're amazed by God, angels who have seen everything. We naturally praise those things that we enjoy. When we see, you know, amazing feats of strength or, or athleticism on the field, right? We're sitting, we'll, many of us will sit this evening and watch football. Hopefully the Seahawks, by God's grace, will not screw it up again, right? But as they victoriously work to the glory of God to win and everyone to rejoice, right? As you're sitting there and something amazing happens, you don't like stop and go, did you guys see? I saw that too. I think it's probably, probably appropriate that we praise this. Well done. That was so good, right? It just is like, yeah, woo, yeah, you do weird stuff, right? You get crazy about it because it's just coming out of you because you're enjoying it. It's like a beautiful sunset. Right? You see something beautiful in creation, and it's very rare for you to see and go, hmm. On the scale of beautiful things, that's got to be like top 10%. I mean, it's really like, no, you're just like, Wow. Or a good meal, right? For those vegetarians, vegans among us, it's like that wonderful carrot, I guess. For, for those God-glorifying carnivores among us, it is, right? It, it's, for, it's that ribeye steak. And you eat it. You put, it, put a piece of that beautiful meat with a little bit of fat on the side. You just eat it. And very rarely do you put it in your mouth, you're like, you know what, this is very life-sustaining and nutritious. I'm so glad that I have this, like, no, you're just like, mmm, man, that's good. And so, we're talking about the natural response of enjoying something. And C.S. Lewis actually said that God's command to glorify Him is, is really just an invitation to fully enjoy Him. And, and to enjoy His love and His justice and, and His promises and His plan and to see His kingdom as perfect and trustworthy of all. And they also say peace. This is, this is peace. Peace is coming. Peace to all men. This is more than just comfort in the moment. When the Bible talks about peace, it's often talking about 
this, this deep sense of well-being, this sense of security, this sense of soundness, this sense of completeness. It has way more to do than just circumstances. It's hard to find peace in most circumstances. And you realize that this peace that we so desperately want has to come from outside of us, outside of this world. Peace comes to men from God, not from men. See, everyone, I bet if pressed, you would say, man, my life would be more peaceful if I had this or this was taken away. Whatever this is. You see, life, as much as we think it's harder today, it was just as difficult back then. Taxes were high. Families were broken. Morals were slipping lower. The government was broken. But see, true heart peace is not experienced through a better job or better health or better laws or better family or better situation or better fill in the blank. Although I haven't listened to it this year, and I don't intend to, yes, a baby changes everything. But let's be clear. The baby, Jesus, did not come to change their immediate circumstances. He looked beyond that. He came to change their entire context, their entire perspective, and to give them peace in every circumstance they might occur in their life. It was wholly different. So when the angels go away from these guys, the shepherds, it says, says to one another, well, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that's happened which the Lord has made known to us. And the shepherds respond to the news. You notice angels don't tell them what to do. They disappear. They proclaim the news. And they're like, okay, we should probably go see what's going on. They desire to go to Bethlehem. They desire to see Jesus. To even worship Jesus not in response to some command, but something that's coming out from within them. Their hearts have been changed. And that's the only thing that's going to change someone's heart. That's the only way that circumstances are going to change. The Lord is going to show up and present Himself to you. I pray that that happens for all of us. But that's what happens to these guys. They desire to worship Jesus and it's awesomeness. And I think that many of us, especially those who know Christ, we justify our, I guess, indifference towards Jesus, unwillingness to seek Jesus, to spend time with Jesus, to go see Jesus, to follow Jesus. We justify it because, well, no messenger came and talked to me. There's no shaft of light that showed up and... and you know, angels and their myriads and myriads telling me, I want a messenger like that so I can know. 
I would argue that we desire to worship Jesus not because of a messenger that is coming, but one that has already come. That has blown our minds. I mean, do we understand what's happening in this moment where the infinite God is becoming a human? Is taking on human flesh to save a creation that rebelled and hates Him, and yet He is going to love. And these simple, anonymous, uneducated, inexperienced shepherd run with haste to find Mary and Joseph and a baby lying in a manger. These guys drop everything. Like the first disciples, Peter, James, John, that drop their nets with their dad and his business and follow Jesus. With haste, without excuse. They rushed to Bethlehem like a super sale on Black Friday and they were wanting to see Christ. You could have understood their delay if they had waited. Like, oh, well, I got lots of sheep to take care of. And many of their justifications would sound as convincing to those of us who have used the same ones to explain our refusal to drop everything and see Jesus. I don't have time. i got to get this squared away. I have too many responsibilities. I'm busy. The things of the Lord will have to wait. I don't even know where to start looking. I bet they might have said that. And you go like, what is it that convinced them? They didn't have a command. They didn't have a directive. They didn't have instruction to go, go to Bethlehem and do this. So there's something compelling them, but what got them beyond that just simple desire to actually action? And I actually think there was two things they had that compelled them. And they're the very same things you have, we have today. One, they had a message of good news. And two, they had each other. It didn't just appear one shepherd. There's a flock of shepherds. And you realize the power of crowds if you know any kind of junior high kids and the dumb things they're able to do in crowds, right? Well, you can do really positive things in crowds too as the positive peer pressure. we got to go. You think so? Yeah, we should do this. Let's go. They had a community of guys together who had experienced the Word of God together and wanted to drop everything so they could follow together. And they did. And then they find the staple. And they do more than just peek in, right? Oh, yep, there's the baby. Just like they said, let's get out of here. It says, when they saw it, in verse 17, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. They told, this is what the angel said. I wonder how they felt. Right? Being the untrustworthy shepherds coming with a pretty fantastic story. Um, so, we were in the fields, um, and this angel showed up. Like these dirty, outcast, underprivileged, blue-collar, uneducated, hard-working kings of the fields became the first preachers of Jesus. They're the first preachers. Because what did they preach? Here's what the angel said. Behold, I bring you good news of great joy. There's a saint. They preach the gospel. These nobodies. 
That's who God uses. If you think you're somebody, you still need Jesus. If you think you're nobody, you're qualified, right? Qualified to tell someone about Jesus. They found the stable. They, they approached these strangers holding this baby, surrounded by animals. They told them, and they were willing to risk unbelief and ridicule. But this is what Jesus has commanded us all to do. Not just pastors, not just scholars and theologians, not just those with the gifts of evangelism. All of us. And I fear that we hesitate. That though we may not build our kingdom like Herod did or Caesar did, we don't declare the glories of the kingdom that we believe governs us truly. And this becomes most evident at Christmas. What I mean is that Christians seem to get kind of weird at Christmas. Um, and I don't mean weird, like I'll be weird. Christmas Eve is tomorrow, 4 p.m. It's going to be packed. Get here early. Um, but like, I've got an awesome Star Wars Christmas sweater. People keep asking me, hey, it's an ugly sweater. No, it's an awesome sweater. It's not ugly. It's Christmas and Star Wars. What's wrong with you? And I even have a matching mug to go with my awesome Christmas sweater. So like, when I say Christians get weird during Christmas, there is that. That just might be Sam weird, but that's not what I mean. I mean, Christians become, it seems, obnoxiously concerned with making a big noise about keeping Christ in Christmas once a year. And then neglect our responsibility to claim, proclaim Christ in January, in February, in March, and in April, in our neighborhoods, in our homes, at our jobs, wherever we go. Let the world have Christmas and I'll take 364 for Jesus. But it seems like, oh, what about the reason for the season? Yeah, the reason for the season also is the 26th, the same reason. Now, though we can say we need to proclaim the gospel because Jesus commanded it, right? Like, Leaf, you're like, I got to tell people about Jesus or I'm bad. Like, that's not really what I want our motivation to be. We shouldn't be motivated purely by Jesus' command, though guess what? He did command us to go and to proclaim the gospel to all creation. And until He returns, that's still our job. We could proclaim the gospel because we know it saves people and sound very benevolent. But here's the truth. We should proclaim the gospel, gospel because it glorifies God whether anyone's saved or not. I would argue that the salvation of people in the proclamation of the gospel is a benefit of glorifying God. And glorifying God is a result of enjoying because the re we only do things truly because we enjoy them. We find joy in doing them. So that the moment glorifying God through sharing the gospel becomes duty, I think we might be off in the wrong motivation. Because we've 
personally stopped enjoying the glory of God as expressed in his birth, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It doesn't captivate you anymore. And we know not, not everyone's going to listen. The shepherds had that experience. At least not in a way that it changes. I wish every time you open your mouth and you said, Jesus is Savior and Lord, repent and believe, everyone's like, go. And it does happen, but it doesn't always happen. Our job isn't to make sure people are saved. Our job isn't to make sure we're the most persuasive Our job isn't to be the Savior, but to be faithful to point to the one who is. That's why in verse 18, it says, all who heard what the shepherds were saying wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. I love that verse. That could be my favorite verse in the whole story of Christmas. Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. You know, there are many here who have probably seen many Christmases as Christians. And you've probably heard the story of the Nativity and the story of Jesus many, many times, just as these guys have foretold or proclaimed. But let me ask you something. When was the last time it just wowed you? When was the last time with all the busyness of the season, the distraction, the difficulties of life, you just stopped and went, wow! Look what is happening. Yes, there's angels. Yes, there's miracle after miracle. Virgin birth and midnight decrees and angel armies. But you have the Son of God as a baby in the manger heading toward a cross so that He could fix what is broken in this world. Amazing. My fear is that that amazement sometimes passes like the Christmas season. So like Mary, if we desire lasting joy, if we desire enduring faith, the Gospel must become our treasure. Must become that thing that goes deeply into our heart that we ponder daily. Because there's something that often comes about daily that causes you to fear, that causes you to worry, And when that great fear comes, because it will come, if not now, it will some point, where it just overwhelms you, where you feel like, I'm not in control. I am so scared. This is not what I expected. The Gospel tells you that there is great joy and it overwhelms it. Great fear can't just be quieted. Great fear has to be overwhelmed by an army of angels declaring glory to God and peace to men. God saying, I got this. It doesn't look like it. I realize the plan looks a little odd. 
And I realize that this little baby is going to go to a cross and die. And everything. I go, that can't be the right way. And he says, I got this. Trust me. Believe me. After their come to Jesus moment, their high, if you will, the shepherds return to real life. Right? The last verse. The shepherds returned, right? Angel armies, announcements, everyone getting celebrating what they they go back to the hills. And they're back in the dirt with their sheep. Yeah, I can't. It's a one-time thing. But my fear for many of us, and I and I say this for myself, is that we have a faith that's in danger of becoming a one-hit wonder. That upon returning to life after a sermon or a Sunday morning or a mission trip or some experience or even a Christmas season, that the joy and the captivation and the faith disappears. My hope is that God will open our eyes to see the glories of the Gospel and truly increase our enjoyment of Him through Christ to center us on what is true and what is real because especially during this season, it can get so busy and so crazy and so dark and so weird that we forget what is true. But what is true is that Jesus came once and He is coming again. That this world is not all there is. That things are broken. And there's one who is fixing it, has fixed it, and will fix it completely. So my prayer is that we will go back into the world as the broken, outcast, dirty, redeemed people that we are and proclaim grace in Christ, forgiveness in Christ, power in Christ, peace in Christ to all the other outcasts out there who need to hear it, especially after Christmas. Because it's just as true then. I'll close with a brief quote from C.S. Lewis. It's not a quote, it's a paraphrase. I'm sure many of you are familiar with the Chronicles of Narnia. Um, it's interesting, before Aslan returns, I don't mean after his death, if you have never read the story or seen the movie, Aslan's Jesus, sorry, just ruined it for you, but I like to ruin those kinds of things. Aslan is, pictures Jesus, pictures Christ. It's a story of redemption in many powerful ways, in simple ways, in good ways. But in the world that, that the humans enter into, the beginning, it's full of snow. It's ruled by the White Queen, and it's dark, and it's cold, and it's evil and broken. And there's a saying that keeps being repeated and several characters say it, that it's always winter and never Christmas. It's always winter and never Christmas. But then Aslan shows up. And Christ, whom Aslan pictures, has also come. And He is coming. And so we don't have to say Well, it's always winter and it's never Christmas. On the contrary, because Christ has come and because Christ is coming, it is no longer ever winter. And it is always Christmas. Always. And that's why I can say that every sermon's a Christmas sermon. 
because it all goes back to Christ. You're welcome. Let's pray.